All right. Well, it is good to be back with you. We're still obviously missing lots of people, but I am glad to be back here with George's Creek. And uh, we're continuing with our study in the book of Romans. And you know that we're in this section where we are talking about the benefits of being justified by faith in Jesus. And Paul first said that because we've been justified by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. And, And not only that, but we also have access to God. And these are wonderful benefits. And Paul is going to continue to list all the benefits of salvation and being justified by faith. And we come to a section now that is a little difficult, right? Because it's great to talk about having peace with God. It's great to talk about access to God. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the Christian life is not all sunshine and rainbows, is it? As much as we might like it to be, that is not the case, even though the majority of people in our world who are unbelievers, especially militant atheists, accuse Christians of only being believers because it makes us feel good. Because we think it gives us a life of ease. You'll remember it was the famous atheist Karl Marx who said, religion is the opiate of the masses. It numbs people. It makes us feel good. It blinds us to reality and what's going on around us. But again, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that is simply not the case, is it? It doesn't always feel good to be a Christian. It's not always easy to be a Christian, is it, church? We're living in a very difficult time to be a Christian. There are dangers, there's violence, there's hatred, there's suffering, there are real threats in our world. And listen to me, this is nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning. You might think, well, hey, in the early days, it might have been different. No, no. Let me just remind you that Jesus' followers never had it easy. You look at how they all died. Paul and James, they were beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, Philip, and Simon were all crucified. Matthew and Thomas were, were pierced to death by spears. Listen to this one. Nathaniel was skinned alive and then crucified upside down. Matthias, Judas, and the other James were all stoned to death, and then only John died of old age after they tried to boil him alive unsuccessfully. Do you think any of Jesus' disciples and apostles would have said, oh yes, this faith, it is an opiate. (laughs) Oh yes, the reason we're following Jesus is because it makes us feel good and it leads to a nice, happy, pleasant life. No. They didn't follow Jesus because of how it made them feel. They followed Jesus because Jesus said to them, follow me. And they knew He was the Messiah. They knew what He said was true. And so they were willing to give up even their own lives, to lay down their lives for this one whom they knew to be the Messiah, the Christ of God. You see, contrary to the popular belief today, Christianity does not promise you a life of ease and comfort. I always want to stress that because we're living in an age where you have these big churches and all they care about are people coming to make a decision. Make a decision, make a decision, make a decision. They're not warning them of the realities of what it means to follow Christ. You do not just come and make a decision to go to heaven and get out of hell. If you come to follow Christ, it is a call to come and die, to lay down your own life, to take up your cross. It is not easy. 
And we are deceiving people by telling them that it is. Being a Christian is one of the hardest things you can possibly be in this life. The Bible never says if you come to Jesus, you will prosper and be healthy and wealthy as the false preachers today like to teach. The Bible promises every single believer, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, this is what the Bible promises you, suffering. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you. Listen to that word, granted. Keep that in mind, okay? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, that's been granted to you, praise God for that, but also, listen, suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you, Christian, that for the sake of Christ, you should suffer for His sake. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, 16-17, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Thank God for that. And if children, then heirs, praise God, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Well, hold on a second. There's a caveat. You get all those great promises. Can we all agree those are some great promises? Amen, brother. Great promises, caveat, provided. Provided what, church? Provided you suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. That is what is promised to you as a follower of Christ. You will suffer. Your life will be hard. And yet, here's the amazing thing to me. The key word in our passage is rejoice. What? The key word is rejoice. Paul is talking about all these sufferings and these hardships. The Bible is promising suffering. And Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. He says it like this, or, or James actually says it like this in James 1-2. He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How in the world, right? Can we just be, let's be honest. We're always real with each other here. How in the world is that possible? How in the world can we do that? Because again, let's just be honest. When we're suffering, the last thing any of us want to do is rejoice, right? Are we real enough with each other where we can say that? Let's not be super holy and go, oh no, I love it when I suffer. It's great. I'm just, yeah, that's the best time of my life. No, we don't like to suffer. And none of us want to rejoice when we are suffering. And yet Paul says that's what we're called to do. True Christians can rejoice even in the midst of sufferings. So here's my question, church. Why? Why should we? Why should we rejoice in our sufferings? That's what I want us to consider together this morning. Why should we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, Paul is going to begin to answer that there in verse 3. So I want you to look with me there. Verse 3, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now, those two words there, suffering and endurance, are incredibly important because they paint this beautiful picture in the Greek. You know, I like the biblical languages more than English because they can paint pictures and we can barely put together a sentence. So, but they have this beautiful picture in the Greek with this word suffering. It, it typically referred to a heavy piece of timber that would press down on stalks to separate wheat from chaff. Or they would use it to press down grapes to squeeze out wine, right? So it's a heavy weight that's pressing down on something. And then the word endurance is actually a combination word. 
So the first part means below or under. And the second part refers to a living place or a dwelling place to live under something. So there's a, if you can imagine what would be a great picture of this, and I didn't put it on the screen, but uh, from Greek mythology, you're familiar with Atlas, right? He was the man who had the entire world on his shoulders. That's a great picture of what's going on here. The world is that heavy weight that's pressing down on something, and Atlas is the one who's living under it, bearing it up. That's the picture that's being uh, painted here in the Greek, is to remain and live under a heavy weight of difficult circumstances in order, there's a purpose, to further your ability to endure such weight. So if you just want a real-world example of this, this is what it looks like. It's going to the, to the gym for the first time in years and years. <laughs> that's not fun, is it? You go to the gym for the first time in years, and you try to lift some weight, you're not going to be lifting very much, are you? You can barely lift anything. Your, your muscles cannot remain or bear under that weight for very long. But the next couple times you go to the gym, what happens? Well, I'm just going to move down the rack. I can pick up a little bit more, right? I can lift more and more. And what you're doing is you're actually training your muscles to be able to bear up under heavier and heavier weight because they have been subjected to that weight. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God uses suffering in our lives in that exact same way. That we're subjected to these heavy trials and these difficulties and these circumstances and they press down upon us so that we can further bear them up in the future. In other words, church, this is good news. It means that your difficulties in life, they're not purposeless. They can feel that way sometimes, can't they? You go through something, you say, what's the point of this? Why is this happening to me? Why am I having to go through this? And you can feel like it is just purposeless. But I want you to know, there's no such thing with our God. They are not purposeless. God knows that we are going to face unbelievable hardships in life. We're going to experience tragedies in this life. And listen to me, God doesn't want us to be unprepared for those trials when we get there. He doesn't want us to be unprepared when they actually come upon us. And so God uses trials to build our endurance now. And so we have a reason to rejoice, even though it's hard. Even in the midst of hardship and suffering, we have a reason to rejoice. Because here's what I want you to understand. God loves us enough to strengthen us for future suffering. I think that's Paul's point here. God loves us. It's an act of His love and His mercy. He loves us enough to strengthen us for future suffering. How bad of a father would he be if he knew what was coming and did absolutely nothing to prepare us for it? But he's a great father, a loving, heavenly father, who knows exactly what is coming in all of our futures and begins to prepare us for it now. You see this all throughout the Bible, by the way, right? If you've been in our study in Genesis in the past two years, uh, you know that Joseph had to learn this through experience, right? You look at the life of Joseph, and he had to endure the betrayal of his brothers so that he would one day be able to endure the betrayal of Potiphar's wife. He had to endure the pit so that one day he would be able to endure the prison for years and years and years. God knew exactly what was going to be taking place in Joseph's future. And because he loved him, he went ahead and started preparing him for that future. 
He used those trials in his life to build him up, to strengthen him so that he would be able to endure what was coming in the future. Even my favorite missionary of all time, Adoniram Judson, I've talked about him so much, you should know by now. He faced incredible and unbelievable, consistent hardships and suffering in his life. And when he was asked, how on earth are you still a Christian? How have you been able to endure all of this? This is what he said. He said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. You see, don't miss that, church. The key to Judson's endurance was knowing, just as Paul says here, by the way, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing knowing that there was a purpose in the pain, that it was not purposeless, that God loved him enough to strengthen him for what lied ahead. You see, here's the thing. Sometimes we can get so focused on the moment that we can't see anything beyond it, right? We live in the moment. Everybody lives in the moment. We rarely focus on the future and what's coming ahead, but God wants us to take a heavenly perspective and see that momentary affliction has eternal purposes. Did you hear me on that one, church? Momentary affliction has eternal purposes. We aren't just passively experiencing the trials in our lives that are happening to us. God is actively using those trials to put some muscle on our souls, right? Just as you go to the gym to put some muscle on your arms and your chest and everything else, when we face trials and suffering, God is putting some muscle on our souls so that we are able to endure the trials that are coming in our future. He's building up our tolerance. So this is what this looks like, right? If God knows that our ability to endure criticism is weak, then he'll give us just a taste of it now so that we can withstand the onslaught of it in the future. Doesn't feel good to be criticized, does it? But we can rejoice that God is allowing us to experience it now to strengthen us for what is coming. If if God knows that our future will be one of great loss, He'll allow us to experience some loss now to prepare us to be able to face the coming hardship. If He knows that there's going to be a great betrayal in our future, God in His mercy will allow us to face little betrayals now so that we're prepared for what's coming. Here's the point, church. God knows exactly what is coming in your future. He knows exactly what you're going to be facing in life. And He knows what you need to be able to endure what is coming. And so He's using trials to prepare you for that future. God is always up to something. Can we not rejoice in that? God is always up to something. Even when it seems like God has abandoned us, that He's forgotten us, that we're in the midst of the darkness and we're all alone, our God is always working. He's always up to something. And so we can rejoice knowing that God loves us enough and cares about us enough to prepare us for what's coming, to strengthen us for the future. But Paul says we have even more reason to rejoice. I want you to see what he says in the first part of verse 4 there. He says, not only does suffering produce endurance, but endurance produces character. Now that word character is interesting because it comes from the Greek word meaning tested. Right? So a good way to think about this is uh, a few years ago, I think many of you know I, I like to garden or try to garden unsuccessfully. 
uh, even with Gene McKinney as your father-in-law, you can still mess it up. So uh, I sent a sample of my soil. My mom helped me do this. We sent a sample of my garden soil to Clemson University to be tested because I thought, it's not me. It's got to be the garden, right? So we had the, the garden soil tested, and they sent back a report of the quality of my soil. It told me, you know, what it had plenty of, what it was lacking, what was good about it, what was bad about it. It was a report of the quality of my uh, soil. And Paul is actually using the word character here in the same way. He's saying that our character is a report of our quality as a Christian. Our character reveals where we're excelling in the Christian life and where we're struggling. Our character reveals what we have lots of and what we can use improvement in. Our, our character is a report of our quality as a Christian. And the Bible is saying here that the way that God actually improves our character and makes us into a quality Christian is through suffering. That's not fun, is it? Actually, you can think about suffering kind of like the potter's kiln. We've talked about that in Genesis as well. I have an aunt who used to be a potter. She made these beautiful creations. I mean, she was artistically just so gifted. And she used to make these beautiful creations, and then she would have to put them in the kiln. And I asked her one time, I was like, why do you do that? And she said, well, it serves two purposes, really, right? So the first is the kiln will burn away all the remaining imperfections in the creation. And the second is you have to put it in the kiln if you want it to remain looking the way that you've made it to look, right? If you want it to stay that way, you've got to subject it to the kiln. Well, can I tell you this morning that God uses suffering in the same way in our lives? When we go through suffering, it slowly burns away all our remaining sinful imperfections. And it makes sure that we come out the way that God wants us to be, and we stay that way. The kiln is not fun. But it is necessary, isn't it, church? This way it looks. If you're arrogant, here's what suffering's going to do for you. Suffering will humble you, will it not? That's what the kiln will start to burn away. If you're materialistic, suffering will teach you to value the things that truly matter in life. If you live as though you are self-sufficient and can do everything on your own, well, listen to me. Suffering is going to show you just how dependent you are. If you prioritize the opinions of man, suffering will teach you to live for God and God alone. To live for an audience of one. Suffering is going to rid us and burn away all of our sinful imperfections. And so what we need to be doing is when we're suffering, we should be asking ourselves, is there a sinful imperfection in my life that God is seeking to rid me of through this experience? When we're facing difficulties and trials and suffering, we should be asking ourselves, what issue in my life could God be addressing through this trial? What is He trying to, to burn away in my life? How is He trying to improve my character? But because God is always up to something. Again, the Bible says that God is the potter and we are the clay. And so He is shaping us and molding us to be more like Christ. That's why we suffer. Because God is trying to conform us to the image of Christ, and he has to put us in the kiln so that we stay that way. This is exactly how Paul says it in Romans 8, 29. It's going to be on the screen. Look at this. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined. Now, there's a purpose there. What is it, church? Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined for this purpose, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, being Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is what God is doing in our lives. He is making us more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the purpose. That's the goal, church. As you walk through the Christian life, as we behold Jesus in His beauty, in His glory, in His majesty, and the more that we seek Him and focus on Him and follow Him, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to transform us, to, to change us from one degree of glory to another, to make us more and more into the image of Christ so that we shine forth with the beauty of Jesus Himself, reflecting the glory of God to this world. And it happens... Through suffering. Suffering is when the heavy hands of the potter are on us as his clay, and molding us and shaping us into who he wants us to be. And I know this isn't a popular message today. I know that it's not because we live in a world that prioritizes momentary, fleeting happiness. What a way to waste your life to live for the moment, to live for fleeting happiness, to live for things that aren't going to matter in eternity. And yet, that's what our world says, give yourself to. Give yourself to that. Live for that. Live for the momentary, fleeting, temporary pleasure and happiness. Can I just tell you this morning, God wants more for you than that. What a sad God that would be if that's what He gave us to. He just said, yeah, go enjoy yourself for these things. God wants more for you than momentary, fleeting happiness. And the world has trained us to live this way, to value these things, to live for myself and whatever I want to do. And listen, if you live it up now and enjoy yourself now, I hate to tell you, but eternity is going to be miserable for you. I think one person said it like this, if you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. But Paul says, God cares about you more than allowing you to do that. Here's the point I want you to understand this morning. I know this isn't popular, but just hear me on this. God cares more about your holiness than He does about your happiness. Now, true Christians can be able to say amen to that. I know that it's not popular, but it's something that we should treasure. God cares more about your holiness than He does about your happiness. Now listen, that doesn't mean the two are mutually exclusive, okay? That's not what it means. You can be happy and holy and praise God for that. But here's what it does mean, and I want you to hear me on this, so listen very carefully. God will not forsake your holiness for the sake of your happiness. You can be happy and holy, but He will not forsake your holiness for the sake of your happiness. He has much bigger and better plans for you than momentary fleeting happiness. And we should rejoice that He does care more about our holiness, right? Because the Bible plainly says in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You need to be holy as God is holy. Guess what? We're not. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so God says, I'm going to make my people holy. 
And one of the ways He does that is through the kiln. And so we can rejoice that God is ridding us of our remaining sin and He's growing us in the holiness we need to be able to see Him one day. Listen to me, church. He's creating character in us. A proven, tested character. He's making us into a quality Christian so that when you see someone who has been through great suffering and trials and that person continues to believe on Jesus and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus, you say, that person has been redeemed by the Lord. I think about two men in our church. I think about Gene Merle and Don Cruz. Tell me they don't fit this description. You look at what Don Cruz is going through. You look at what Gene Merle has gone through and is going through again. And you see the fact that those men are always praising God and rejoicing and, and just living for the Lord and making the most out of every day. And they are still loving the Lord and praying to the Lord. They're still seeking the Lord and following the Lord. You say, that man has character. And you know where he got it? Through suffering. It's not fun. But it is necessary. And it creates character in us. So as the great pastor Charles Simeon said, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Jesus, has surmounted all His suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow Him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of His victory. How encouraging is that, church? Our head has made it through. We can bear the pricking of our legs because of it. Jesus has walked the path of suffering and sorrow. If we're called to follow Him and He's the good shepherd, we're the sheep, what path do you think we're going to follow? What path do you think has been trodden by all the sheep before us? It's the path of suffering. The path of sorrow. And the reason we can do it is not because we're strong. It's because we follow our Savior who has gone before us. Jesus said, hey, listen, take heart. You're going to have a lot of difficulty in this world, but take heart because I have overcome the world. We have the grace of God in Jesus Christ that is strengthening us and enabling us to be able to endure all of life's hardships. We would not be able to do that if the Savior had not gone before us. So my dear brothers, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. We can rejoice that God is building character in us, that He's building our endurance. And then all of this has an end result. What is the ultimate Christian response to suffering? I want you to see what Paul says in the last part of verse 4, first part of verse 5. He says, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And that hope does not put us to shame. Now again, this is something that's completely counterintuitive to what goes on in our world, is it not? Here's what's interesting, right? If you're in the world, you're not a believer, you have hope if things are going well in your life. Everything's going right, life is good, you're hopeful. You're like, the future might be great. I'm very hopeful. But as soon as life takes a turn, and the tragedies come, and the trials come, and the sufferings come, hope goes out the window, doesn't it? You might try to remain holding on to hope, but most of the time, hope goes right out the window. Isn't it interesting that the Bible is the exact opposite? Here, the Bible is saying that hope comes from suffering. That suffering gives birth to hope. 
We can have hope even in the midst of suffering and not the type of hope that the world has. Because again, the way that the world uses hope today is as though hope is nothing more than a wish, right? Let me think about it like this, right? I hope that Clemson wins every game they play. I don't know that they will, probably won't, but I hope that they do. I hope that my boys will one day repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and follow him. I don't know if they will, but I hope that they do. When the markets crash and the economy tanks, we hope that we're going to be able to make it financially, right? I have no idea if we will, but we hope so. The hope of the world is a hope without any sort of guarantee whatsoever. But that's not biblical hope. That's not the hope of the Christian. That's not the way the word is used here. This hope is a sure hope. It is a hope with an absolute guarantee. And it's the guarantee that God will bring all of His promises to pass. That He will make you more like Christ. That He will never leave you or forsake you. He will burn away all your remaining sin. And you will get to be with Him forever in glory. God is going to make good on His promises. That is a hope with a guarantee. It's the exact same guarantee that Paul reminds the Philippians of in Philippians 1.6. He says, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul says here, listen church, this hope cannot put us to shame. Paul earlier in Romans said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And here he says, my hope in Jesus Christ, it will never put me to shame. How is that possible? What does that look like? When you're in the midst of darkness, when everything in life is falling apart, when you feel like your world is coming to an end, when you don't know how you can even make it to tomorrow, when your loved ones are slowly dying, when your economy is crashing, when you lose the job, when everything is falling apart, and you go, God, how on earth am I supposed to continue in this life and make it? Paul says, because you have hope in Jesus, and He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The God who started your salvation will complete your salvation. And you will never be disappointed. You will never be put to shame. God is more faithful than life's difficulties are hard. You can trust in Him. You can follow Him. You have hope in Him. And so listen, church, even though it's hard, we have a reason to rejoice. You see, ultimately, I think this is what Paul wanted the church in Rome to know and what God wants us to know this morning. I think this is the whole point of these couple verses here, is that even when life doesn't go our way, it always goes God's way. Amen? Even when life doesn't go our way, and let me tell you, life rarely goes Alex's way, okay? Even when life doesn't go our way, it always goes God's way. I know most of you in here, but even those that I might not know that well, I know two things about every single person in this room. It's either that you have experienced incredible difficulty and hardship and suffering, or you're going to. There are no exemptions in this room. There are no exemptions watching online or listening to the podcast later. There are no exemptions to this anywhere. You either have gone through it or you are going to go through it. And I've experienced some incredible hardships in my life. I'm not that old. 
even though Joseph likes to say that I am. I'm not that old, but I have been through the darkness. I have faced many difficulties and hardships and sufferings, and I continue to battle it to this day. And let me just tell you something. That is not the life I would have chosen for myself. Can I just be real with you? Again, we're honest here with each other. We're real. I mean, if I wanted to sound super spiritual, I'd be like, of course I choose suffering. Yeah, I love it. That's the, that's the way I want to go. Of course, this is, the, this is what God had planned for me. That's the life I would have chosen. No, let's just be honest. All the things that I've had to experience and still battle today, it is not what I would have chosen for my life. I think if you think about your own life and you think about what you've had to face, the losses you've had to endure, the suffering that has come your way, the pain that has resulted from it, I know that you probably would not have chosen that life for yourself, right? We want the life of ease. We want the life of comfort. We want life to go how we planned for it to go, even though that rarely happens. And those times of suffering, they have left permanent scars upon us, and we carry them even to this day. But listen to me, the fact that you're still here, and you're still trusting in Jesus and following Jesus, here it is, it's proof. It is proof that you have true faith. How encouraging is that? The fact that you have not walked away. The fact that you have been through the ringer. That you have experienced loss and betrayal and hardship and suffering. And times where you thought, God, I don't even know if I can make it to tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to continue living. And the fact that you're still here and loving Jesus and following Jesus, that is proof that you have true faith. These verses give us assurance of the authenticity of our faith. Because let me tell you something, church. Faith Christians... They cannot endure. Those who just come to church on a Sunday morning occasionally, those who just come to church on Christmas and Easter, those who just come to church because they don't want to go to hell, those who filled out a card when they were five and then they have lived like the devil ever since, and those who are merely Christians in name, they come to Jesus because they say, oh, this is great, I get to go to heaven, I don't have to go to hell, this is awesome, but you let a little suffering come in their life. Then we'll see if they're true Christians. That is what exposes true faith. When fake Christians are subjected to suffering and pain and hardship and distress, they walk away. They cannot endure. But listen to me. True Christians, by the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, we persevere to the end. We walk with God through the fire of those tribulations and through those sufferings. And when we do, and God brings us safely through, we're filled with hope. Because even though it might have felt like we were going to die, we didn't. The suffering did not end us. Our God brought us through. And so we're filled with hope. And we're encouraged that God used those times of suffering to strengthen us, to build up some endurance, to put some muscle on our souls. When another one comes our way, we rely on God more, do we not? We learn to trust in Him more. We see that He's actually created character in us, a proven, tested character that we continue to trust God no matter what comes into our life. When we can look at our trials and difficulties and sufferings and see that nothing this world can throw at us could possibly get us to walk away from Jesus, we have a confidence and assurance and hope that we will be with God forever in glory. Amen, church? Is that not the truth? You see, we know that God will never abandon us or forsake us. We know that He has put us on the path to glory. And that is the path of suffering and hardship and sorrow. If the Savior was called a man of sorrow acquainted with grief, why should the sheep expect anything different? 
You see, Jesus knew how to draw a crowd, much like many churches today know how to draw a crowd. But here's what happened. Anytime Jesus started preaching some hard truths, and he did, the crowd started to disappear, didn't they? And then you saw who the true disciples were. And there was a time like this in John 6. Jesus drew this huge crowd. Then he started preaching hard truths, not popular messages of the day. And everybody started to walk away. And Jesus turned to his own disciples and he said, do you want to go away as well? I wonder what you would say to Jesus in, to that question today. In the midst of your hardship, in your suffering, in your trial, and in your difficulty right now, where you feel like you're barely making it, you're saying, Pastor, I can't rejoice. I'm trying. I know I need to. I can't even pray, but I know I need I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, Pastor. And Jesus said, do you want to walk away as well? His disciples could have said yes, right? They could have abandoned him and the faith right then and right there. They could have chosen the easy way, the easy path, the easy life. And yet this is how they responded to Jesus. They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, I hope you can say the same thing this morning, even in the midst of darkness and tragedies and agony. When Jesus says, do you want to walk away as well? And when you're thinking about walking away, I hope you can say, Lord, who else am I going to go to? Whom have I in heaven but you, O oh God, and on earth? There is nothing I desire apart from you. Can you say that this morning? How can we rejoice even in the midst of great suffering in life? It's by knowing that even though life might not always go my way, it always goes God's way. There's not a single thing that can happen to you this morning that falls outside of the sovereignty of God. That's encouraging, is it not? The whole world is in His hands, and your life, whether you like it or not, is going according to His plans. Each life is tailor-made for the disciple according to what they need, according to the plans of God. And so we can rejoice that God loves us enough and cares about us enough to prepare us for what life has in store for us. We can rejoice that God cares about our holiness and ensures that we have the holiness we need to be able to see Him one day and dwell with Him forever in glory. And we can rejoice that the One who began a good work in us is going to bring it to completion. He is not going to leave us or forsake us. He's not going to abandon us in the midst of our sufferings and our agonies and our trials. God is with us. And if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Church life isn't always going to go your way, but it is always going to go God's way. He's put you on the path to glory. And that, my friends, is a reason to rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we seek to be lights in the darkness, we confess that, Lord, sometimes the darkness is too much and it's overwhelming. Lord, we confess that even though we want to 
live according to your will, think according to your will, and just be in complete conformity to you and your will, we do not desire suffering. We confess, Lord, that we do prefer the life of ease and comfort. The life that makes us feel good. Lord, we know that we live in a broken world. A world that's been corrupted and contaminated by sin. And because of that, we are going to experience unbelievable hardships and tragedy. God, would you remind us of our reason to rejoice in the midst of those tragedies? Would you remind us that they are not purposeless? That you are building endurance in our lives, enabling us to be able to withstand more and more hardships and trials in our life. Lord, would you let us be thankful that you're creating character in us. That you are making us into quality Christians that shine forth, reflecting the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you remind us of our hope that even when we are in the darkness, when we're in the trials, when we're in the suffering, we are not without hope. We have a sure and certain hope that will not put us to shame and will not disappoint us. A hope that you will finish what you started. That you will guide us home on the path to glory. Lord, let us cling to that hope and keep our eyes on the Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.